Our sermon today is taken from the book of John, chapter 17, verse 1 to 5. This is the word of God. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Thus says the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Pam. Friends, an introduction uh, or a reminder of, of, of where we are right now. We're doing a series through the book of John, and we're in the part of the book that's called, historically, the Farewell Discourse. The Pharaoh discourse is John chapter 14 to John chapter 17. It's that section. And in this section, Jesus teaches and prepares his disciples of what life will be like after Jesus leaves them. Right? Jesus soon is to die on the cross. He is to be resurrected. And he's to ascend back to the Father, physically leaving the disciples, his followers, on their own. Now, Jesus, in preparing his disciples for this time, he, he said a lot of things up to this point. But the main thing, the main umbrella in which uh, everything he, he says can be summarized in, I think, is that he's trying to encourage the disciples to remain faithful to the one and only triune God. God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Although the world might reject them for it. To be faithful to living out and proclaiming the gospel message of this triune God to the world, even if the world rejects it which is the whole premise of the book of John, right? If you go back to chapter 1, remember how John opens the chapter, chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's really weird language. We're just trying to say there's, there's the Word who was equal with God, but yet was with God, so can't be the same person as God, but he existed with God, and, and, and then verse 14, we get more clarity. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the glorious God, the Father, has existed with the glorious God, the Son, who's one God with the Holy Spirit. And God, uh, the Son, came to, as flesh, was born as one of us in the person of Jesus Christ to then die for our sins. Verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world, God the Son, Jesus Christ. He was in the world, yet the world did not know him. That's the premise of the whole book of John. And that's what he's going back, John is going back now, or Jesus is going back now to say that this Pharaoh discourse, he tells his disciples the world will reject this news, but stay faithful to it. Don't steer away from it. That, in a nutshell, is what Jesus said in verses 14 to 16, and what really the whole book of John is about. And now, Jesus here, in the last chapter of the Pharaoh Discourse, chapter 17, closes this discourse with a prayer. Chapter 17 really is just one long prayer. And today what we're going to do is talk about the first section of this long prayer, which is verses 1 to 5. And we'll find in these five short opening verses in Jesus' prayer a topic that is of infinite weight, we'll see that, that the reason for all of creation, the reason for our salvation, we'll see the reason for, for God to, 
from the beginning to, to have all this happen, the, the reason why the disciples gave their life and, life and died for, the, the reason what motivated Jesus to go to the cross is this. God's glory. God's glory. That's the reason for all this. If any passage or subject is to make a preacher feel incompetent, it's this one. But continue we shall. And I pray that as we explore these five verses, we would get a glimpse of God's eternal perspective, and I pray we'd be consumed by God's glory, and that the things of earth would go, grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Here's three things I want to point out. Number one, how God is primarily for his own glory. Number two, how we are to be consumed by his glory. Number three, how God glorifies himself eternally. How God is primarily for his own glory, how we are to be consumed by his glory, and how God glorifies himself eternally. Let's get to it. First point. How God is primarily for his own glory. Let's go to first one. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Okay. Now every Christian realizes that in order to follow God, in order to obey God, in order to live a life that is pleasing to God, it will often be costly. It will often require sacrifice. It will require us giving up something else, whether that's sacrificing financial resources to, to give to his kingdom work or sacrificing our time to give help and counsel a brother and sister in Christ that, that needs counsel or sacrifice our energy in serving at church or sacrifice emotional capacity to do the hard work of reconciliation that we often so want to run away from or sacrifice pride because we're putting other people's preferences above ours, or sacrifice social approval because you hold fast to the unpopular message of the gospel. Whatever it may be, obeying God has its cost, and that's not something that's unfamiliar to most, if not all, Christians. And Jesus here, in his obedience to the Father, also is coming in contact with a cost. And it's a very high one. Where do we see that? Verse 1, he says, The hour has come. Father, the hour has come. Remember what the hour, the phrase the hour is in the book of John. It talks about the cross. Soon, Jesus is going to die on the cross. So in this hour, when obedience to God seemed costly to Jesus, when, when, when the cross was impending before him, what did Jesus do? Well, like some of us, he prays. Right? When the impending cost of obedience hovers before our eyes, it is not odd to go to God in prayer. But the content of Jesus' prayer is rather unexpected. He prays that the Father would get on with it. Where do we see that? Look at verse 1 again. Jesus said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. When Jesus says glorify your Son, he's referring to the resurrection. After I die on the cross, vindicate me, glorify me, resurrect me. But think about it. If Jesus is praying for the resurrection, that means he's planning on dying. Right? He can't be glorified and resurrected unless he first dies. So what is Jesus saying here? Father, the hour has come. Let's get on with it. I'll do it. Now I say that's odd. That's an odd prayer. Because usually, I don't know for you, but for me at least, when I can foresee the cost of obedience hovering before my eyes, that's not usually the content of my prayers. I usually pray to God to somehow make the cost less painful. Right? I'll, I'll say something like this. Okay, I'll, I'll love my spouse. 
like Christ loved the church. I'll love my wife like Christ loved the church. But could you also fix them just a little bit so that it won't be so hard for me to obey you and love them? Not that my beautiful wife needs any fixing at all, right? Or we say this, okay, okay, I'll obey and sacrifice uh, my time for this one person who really needs care and counsel right now. But could you kind of help and solve their problem quickly so that I won't have to invest too much time as I obey you in this work? Right? That's kind of what my heart secretly wants. When I face the impending cost of obedience, I don't pray to God to get on with it. I pray to God that he would somehow make it less. Now, I may never say that out loud in a prayer meeting, right? But it's, 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 it's in prayer that I think I have. But Jesus says here, Father, the hour has come. Let's move forward with it. Whatever the cost. Let's move forward with it. Why did he say that? How could he say that? Look at the end of verse 1. Here's the reason why Jesus said that. So that the Son may glorify you. The one longing Jesus had above everything else is to see God the Father glorified. He's saying my humiliating death on the cross, my glorious resurrection, whatever it is, it's all for you. All I want is for you to be glorified. That's why it's worth it. That's why I'll do it for your glory. John Piper, a preacher that a lot of us here perhaps know, highly influenced by Jonathan Edwards, a Puritan writer, described God's glory as this. I think this is a helpful definition. God's intrinsic characteristics going public. God's glory is God's intrinsic, innate character, such as his holiness and his fairness and his justice and his love and his power going public and seen by the creature. The characteristics of Mount Everest is that it is immense and huge and tall. It is, in a sense, glorious, but it is glorified when the eye of man beholds it and lavishes himself or herself upon it. God's, that is God's glory. So how does the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, in other words, how does the cross glorify God? How does the cross reveal God's character to the eye of the creature? Well, let's think about it. What characters of God does the cross display? Let me just name a few. The cross displays to the world God's love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He loves sinners who are his and he is willing to die for them. That's what the cross displays to the creature's eye. It displays to the world God's holiness. That yes, he loves us, but he's holy, holy, holy. He cannot be with sin. It must be paid for. Someone must account for it. Someone must die for it. In his love, he himself paid for it. But yet, the cross displays both his love and his holiness. It displays his power. Death has no hold on him. He's defeated it. Christ resurrected it displays to the world God's humility. The richest being in the universe became poor. So that poor people like us spiritually can become rich and have a relationship with him eternally. The most precious being in the universe was willing to be mocked and killed for sinners. See, Jesus is saying here in verse 1, let the hour come. Let the cross come. Because through the cross, who you are, Father, your grace, your love, your justice, your righteousness, your power, your sovereignty will be publicly displayed for the world to see. And when they see it, I pray they glorify you. 
and they relish in it. So, let's get on with it. Let's get on with it. The God the Son was all about the glory of God the Father. That's what consumed him, that's what he longed for, that's what he wanted. Now, this is rather convicting to me, and perhaps to a lot of us. See, most Christians, I think, find God's glory to be an objectively noble thing. It is objectively a good and right thing. But for Jesus, it was much more than that. He gladly embraced the cross for the Father's glory because for him, God's glory was not just something he found objectively noble and good. God's glory was something that he also subjectively craved. Let me explain the difference. An objectively noble thing is something that you find to be objectively right and good. And because of that, you might be willing to sacrifice for it. For example, you think, most people think, it's a good thing to help the poor, right? And sacrifice for the poor. Give money and time. So, to pursue that thing you find to be objectively noble, right? You muster up the strength and you say, okay, okay, I'm willing to sacrifice my time and my money for the poor because it's something noble, it's something good and right to do. I'll bear the sacrifice, but a craving. When you crave something, you don't only find that thing to be objectively right and good, but it goes beyond that. You also find it to be beautiful and appealing. And all of a sudden, when you crave something, any cost you pay for it doesn't feel like a sacrifice, but rather a joy. For example, who here considers shopping to be a sacrifice? Okay, I know, I don't mean shopping for your spouse, okay? Husbands and wives, too. I don't mean shopping a present for someone else for a gift. I mean shopping for something that you want. Who here would consider that to be a sacrificial thing? Most of us wouldn't. But why not? Aren't you sacrificing your time in traffic to get to the store? Aren't you sacrificing your money to purchase the item, which sometimes... Is very expensive. But for some reason, this time, it doesn't feel like sacrifice. What's the difference? You're losing the same things as you are giving to the poor. You're losing time and money. But for some reason, that felt like a sacrifice and this didn't. What's the difference? Well, because you considered one to be an objectively good thing that you're willing to sacrifice for, and the other, shopping, a subjective craving you find beautiful and appealing. Let me give one more example. Hopefully this could help in the difference. Single guys, there's this girl that you've been wanting to ask out on a date for the longest time. You finally muster up the courage to ask her, and she says yes. Then what do you do? Well, of course, you plan this elaborate date. You try to hide the fact that you did, but we all know you did. That's okay. You spend so much time, you spend so much money into planning and executing this date. But funny enough, every single second you lose and sacrifice, every single penny you spend and sacrifice, strangely enough, none of it felt like painful sacrifice. You were actually glad to get the opportunity to give it up. Why? Because to you, this girl, this date, is not just something that is objectively noble and good and right. It is something you subjectively crave. You find her to be beautiful and appealing. Friends, I'm afraid that for most of us, God's glory 
is merely something that is objectively noble and right and good. But I wonder how many of us actually subjectively crave it. You see the difference? So that when the hour comes to where you're called to sacrifice for it, we don't say, all right, oh, I'll do it for your glory. Oh. But rather we say what Christ did. Here it is, Father. I'd gladly give up what I need to so that the whole world may see who you are and what you're worth to me. Jesus was able to say the hour has come. Great. That's what my life is for. This is what I came to do here in the first place. That is, in fact, what I desire. To live my life in such a way to give whatever I need to give so that the whole world may see and display who you are and what you're worth to me. Because I crave it. And all of a sudden, sacrifice becomes a privilege. Costly obedience becomes a joyful endeavor. And look, it's tempting to say, what does it matter? Right? So long as I obey, what's the difference of whether or not I enjoy doing it? Friends, it makes a whole lot of difference. This analogy perhaps is overused, but I think it's helpful and explains this most directly, I think. Husbands, if you bring a flower back to your wife, you've heard this one, I'm sure. And she asks you why you brought these flowers back. And you say, you know what, because it's just one of those objectively right things that a husband should do. And so it was a sacrifice I must bear as your husband. That is not a satisfying motivation. Because, men, this might come to surprise to you, it's not about the flowers, it's about what the flowers represent. But if you bring home flowers and she asks you why you brought these flowers home and you say, because I find you gloriously worthy of it. And because your beauty transcends that which is comprehensible to the creature's eye. And I can't help but to give up the time and money to get you these flowers to show you what you're worth to me. It matters. Why? Because she doesn't ultimately want the flowers, men. What she wants is to be delighted in. Delight yourselves in the Lord, Psalm 37 says. Not just obey. Be glad and rejoice, Psalm 32 says. Not just do. Shout joyfully to the Lord, Psalm 100 says. Friends, these are not suggestions. You are commanded to crave His glory and not to just merely find it to be a noble and good thing to sacrifice for. Okay, so how does that happen? How can we become one of those who are consumed and so captivated by God's glory to where we subjectively crave it and not just find it as something that is merely objectively good and right? Point number two, a knowledge that consumes us in His glory. How can we be consumed by God's glory to where we subjectively crave it? Well, think about the things that has captivated and consumed you in the past. Whether it's a person you were attracted to, or a breathtaking view of nature, or a profound piece of music, or a spectacular piece of art. Think about those things, and think about how they reeled you in. You weren't captivated by them because you tried really, really, really hard to be captivated, right? What happened? You simply came to see the beauty that these things possessed and you were overwhelmed. 
You didn't really do anything. You simply saw or got to know the person you're attracted to. You simply beheld the view that took your breath away. You simply heard that musical piece that captivated you. You simply observed that piece of art that blew you away. In other words, every time something captivated or consumed you in the past, you've always been on the receiving end. You were the spectator, the hearer, the observer, the one who beheld that object of beauty. Right? So it is also for the one who is consumed by God's glory. You don't strain yourself in order to be consumed by it. You behold it. You take it in. If you remember Exodus 33 and 34, uh, Moses asked God to show him his glory. And what did God do? God didn't tell Moses to try really hard. God showed Moses. Right? He passed before Moses' eyes. He spoke about who he is into Moses' ears. The Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Right? Moses was on the receiving end. He saw and he heard. Then what happened? After Moses beheld God's glory and heard about God's character displayed, Exodus 34, verse 8 says, Moses quickly, immediately, right away, bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. He beheld God's glory and he was consumed. You want God's glory to be something you subjectively crave and not just something you find objectively good and noble? You must first be on the receiving end, behold it, and be consumed by it. Okay, so now the question is, how? Where can we see God's glory, or, or as defined earlier, where can we behold the characters of God publicly displayed to where it'll reel us in and overtake us to then glorify and enjoy Him and delight in Him and sing to Him? Well, by looking unto and truly understanding the gospel. Let's do that as we study verse 2. Let's try to behold the gospel here, and hopefully as a result, God's glory would captivate even sinners like us. Let me read verse 2. I'll start from verse 1, but go to verse 2. Uh, follow along uh, in your liturgy if you could. Father, the hour has come. The time for the cross has come, Jesus says. God the Son says. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Verse 2. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So you look at it closely again. If you truly believe this, a verse as a true representation of who God is, it should consume you, I, I pray. Here's what the gospel is. Jesus says, verse 2, 1, it's a gift. You, God the Father, has given him, God the Son, authority to do what? What does God the Son do? To give eternal life to all those whom you have given him. In other words, none of us deserved it, or else it would have been called a wage. It's a gift. It's a gift we are graciously given. We didn't work for it, you coming to church today didn't earn it. Your Bible reading this week didn't add more to it. It is a gift from God. But it's more than that. Yes, it is a gift through the cross. Yes, it is because God the Son became flesh and died for our sins. But what's profound about this verse is that Jesus here reveals to us the depths and intricacies of this gift. That it is a gift which God has ordained for you to receive from long ago. Where do we see that? Look at verse 2 again. What does the Son have authority to do? The Son has authority to give eternal life to who? Look at how specifically he gets here. Who is eternal life given to? It is given to all whom the Father has given him. 
all whom the Father has given. The picture here is that God the Father has given, past tense, has given God the Son a people, a flock, to whom he will give eternal life to by dying for them one day on a cross. Stick with me. This is profound. This means the ultimate reason of why anyone would receive Christ as Lord and Savior and have eternal life is not ultimately because they happen to be born in a Christian family and therefore were influenced by Christian values and therefore led them to receive the gospel. It is not ultimately caused because they surveyed all the world religions and their own uh, uh, cognitive prowess and sobriety decided for themselves Christianity was the truth. It is not ultimately because they heard a great sermon one day and that great sermon, a great preacher, led them to receive the cross. Yes, all those things might be true secondary causes to your story, but the primary cause, Jesus says in verse 2, of why you received, of why you received, is because from eternity past, God the Father has given you to God the Son. I know this is a point of contention. Let me just briefly read verses 6 and 9. We're going to talk more about it next week. Uh, uh, And that speaks into this a little more poignantly. Jesus says, in case we think this is something that we're making up, Jesus says in verse 6 to 9, I think it's on on the screen. This is continuation of the prayer in John 17. I have manifested your name, Father, to who? Who has just manifested the Father's name to? To the people whom you gave me out of the world. That means there's a world. Remember the world that rejected Jesus? We're all a part of it. But by His grace and mercy, the Father has given a people to Jesus. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. I came here to die for the people that you have given me from eternity past. Friends, what Jesus is saying here is that our hearts, any one of us, the best of us, if it's left to its own desires, would be no different than the world. We would have mocked the message of the cross. It would have been foolishness to us thus confirming that there is nothing that makes those who receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior doesn't make them any better or any worthy than anyone else who hasn't. The only reason why they did receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is because God the Father has made an eternal decree to one day pull you out of the world, hand you over to God the Son, who has made an eternal commitment to one day enter into this world and die for your sins. Friends, when I tell my children that I love them forever, I must to a degree mean it poetically, not literally. Why? Because I'm a mere creature. I'm not an eternal being. I've always existed within the bounds of time. So there's no way I can mean it literally. But when your heavenly father said it, you best believe he meant it literally. That he has loved you eternally. From eternity past We must interpret verse 3 in light of verse 2. Verse 3 says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. He's saying in verse 3, If you have eternal life, because you've come to know or have a relationship with God the Father, 
through the work of God the Son on the cross, that's what verse 3 means, if that's happened, the only reason why you have this eternal life and eternal knowledge of God the Father, back to verse 2, is because you are one of those whom from eternity past God the Father has loved and given over to the Son to one day die for and redeem. Look, there's a lot of people here today. And I know the risk of me pointing this out. And the risk is that less people might come next week. Because it's simply mind-boggling. And it does bring up all kinds of questions that our hearts, it just doesn't really sit well. And I get that. I really do. And there's all these, all these questions that our finite minds are trying to work around and how this infinite being works and it doesn't feel fair in some ways. And, and, and I know, and I get it. But Jesus here apparently felt the need to point it out to his disciples in this prayer. And he does it again more explicitly in verses 6 to 9, as we already saw not counting the many other places in the Bible that this is said. Why? Because if they don't get all this, when they see the cross, they would only have beheld a partial view of God's character. They would only have seen the surface truth of who He is. And that partial truth is this, that the Creator died for me. It's a partial truth. But by explaining this, Jesus is giving His disciples the full picture that God means to display of himself on the cross. That the gospel, listen, the gospel is not just that your creator died for you, but it's that your creator from eternity past, before the world existed, and the verse 5 says, in spite of having full knowledge of your future rebellion and your future sin, still spoke you into existence anyways, so that one day he might display his eternal love for you by dying on a cross for your rebellion and your sin. That is the good news. You ask, where can we see the fullness of God's character on display? Where can I be consumed by who he is? It is through having a full understanding of the cross, not just partial that although he knew the cost of loving you, although he knew the rebellion and sins, and there are many friends that you have fallen into, that I have fallen into, he created you anyways, knowing that one day he will have to die for you. And thus by doing so, revealing to you all of who he is. If you believe that all this is just an elaborate lie, if you think that all of this is just an opium to the masses, if you think that all of this is just a plot to get more money in the offering bag, it's, you're not going to feel attraction. But if you truly believe that the scripture is the word of God revealed to his creatures, communicating himself to them, you will be consumed. And when you see this, you won't just obey you will delight. You won't just do. You'll sing. You won't just give him flowers. You'll burst into praise and declare, I find you gloriously worthy because your beauty transcends that which is comprehensible to the creature's eye. And I can't help but to give up all of my life to show you what you're worth to me. 
How can we find God's glory as something more than just objectively noble? How can we come to truly crave it as Jesus did in verse 1? By continually beholding the fullness of who he is as he has publicly displayed himself on that cross. Exposing to unworthy sinners like us his glory, redeeming us and making us crave it more and more. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. The more you expose your hearts to who God is, as he has displayed himself fully to be on the cross, you'll be transformed from one glory to another. And you'll give all the credit to him and him alone. Because none of it is based upon our own works. And that's not an easy thing to do. It requires you to be disciplined and continually get in the word. Expose yourself to it. It, it requires you to come to, to, to worship that is gospel-centered and cross uh, exalting. Uh, it, it requires you to be intentional being plugged into a gospel community outside of Sunday morning. If you want to continually behold this cross and this truth, you're going to have to make intentional plans and steps to expose yourself to it. And if you do so, by God's grace, I pray your heart and my heart will grow to truly crave His glory. And when the hour comes for you to sacrifice for Him, you too will pray, Father, the hour has come. And it is my joy, it is my craving to be able to give what I need to give in order to show the world your worth because I want nothing else but to see you glorified. Now, in this last point, I want to point out something that will, I hope, continue to take our eyes off ourselves into God's eternal plan. And that is how this glory beholding glory craving transforming pattern that as we behold his glory we're transformed that pattern is something that will last throughout eternity last point how god glorifies himself eternally the last two verses of this opening prayer, opening part of the prayer is profound jesus says i glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do and now father glorify me in your own presence with the glory that i had with you before the world existed first i have to point out how this confirms the divine nature of the Son. He's described himself as having existed with the Father before the world existed, or literally before the world was, before the cosmos was, literally. And not only that, but he also, before the cosmos was, not only existed with the Father, but had the same glory as the Father. thus confirming John chapter 1. But look at verse 4. What did God the Father and God the Son decide on doing before the world was? The work of the cross. Look at verse 4. I glorified you on earth, God the Son says, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. The work of the cross was given by God the Father to God the Son before the world was. So this self-glorifying plan consists of God the Father both giving a people to God the Son to die for and God the Father giving a cross for God the Son to die upon. You see? This was decreed by God the Father and God the Son from eternity past so that one day His people may see this glory and this love. But not only that, we also see in verse 5, this self-glorifying plan was not only decreed from eternity past, not only will it be revealed to the creature on the cross, but it will continue into eternity future. Where do we see that? And now, Jesus prays in verse 5. 
Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Let, just stick, I know it's the last point, still stick with me. Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The phrase glorify me appears a second time here. Remember the first time it appeared in verse 1, referring to the resurrection. Now it appears again in verse 5, Father glorify me in, the presence, in your presence, um, referring not to the resurrection, but to the ascension of Christ. After Jesus Christ, God the Son, who took on flesh and died on the cross for our sins, he will be resurrected by the Father into glorious victory, and then he will ascend to the Father's presence to remain there eternally, as we see at the end of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and John. But now, the question is, how does the physical body of Christ, eternally sitting at the Father's presence, continue God's self-glorifying plan into eternity future? One last connection I'm going to ask you to make today. Remember how Jesus Christ appears when we see him in heaven in Revelation chapter 5, verse 6. I've mentioned this before. What, what will Jesus, the body of Christ, the ascended resurrected body of Christ, look like? Revelation 5, 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw, this is a picture of heaven, I saw a lamb. Who is the lamb of God? Jesus Christ. I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Jesus Christ will bear in his eternal body the physical wounds of the cross. This is the cost that he bore for you. Now remember what we said. God's glory is God's character in public display for the eye of the creature to see. And the more we behold God's glory, the more we'll be consumed by it and crave it and be transformed from one degree of glory to another. So friends, when you behold the wounds of Jesus Christ for eternity, what do you think that does? Are you not, by doing so, seeing God's character in public display? Think about what the cross-wounded body of Christ represents. Does it not make public and visible God's love for you? Does it not make public and visible His patience toward you, His grace for you, His just payment for sin, His righteousness and His, His payment for sin, His humility and His condescension to die in our place? Yes. Jesus' wounded body is the public display of God's love and character to the creature, to his people, eternally. So let me sum it all up. Here is God's eternal self-glorifying plan. That from eternity past, before the world was, God the Father has given unto the Son a people to die for and a cross to die upon. So that one day those people may behold the cross and come to know him and be consumed by his glory. And when this world as we know it has passed for eternity future, we will continually behold that glory, no longer by pondering upon the cross, but by beholding the physical body of Christ that still bears the wounds of the cross. So that day after day, for eternity, we will increasingly be consumed by God's glory and sing unto him, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Holy, holy is He. Your salvation is not about you. Your salvation is an accomplishment of God's self-glorifying plan. And until we realize this, we will not be consumed by it. And our life will always still be about ourselves. And you'll still be the main character of it. And it will all revolve around you. Friends, we are creatures. We are not the main character of this story. He is. 
Will you be consumed by it? This passage, I hope, should have brought us out of ourselves and gave us a glance of God's eternal purpose, his end goal, the purpose of our existence and our salvation, his glory. And it really does put perspective of what the rest of our lives on earth looks like, doesn't it? Don't waste it by allowing lesser things than God to consume you. That's what sin is, glorifying and created things rather than the creator. That's not what you're made for. Don't give your heart to that. Give God the glory he deserves. It's a waste of heart space to enjoy the creature and not the creator. You're made to glorify him, enjoy him, be consumed by who he has revealed himself to be on the cross fully. Turn your eyes off into this eternal God, into this eternal gospel. That is the only way you'll increasingly be consumed by it and thus glorifying him, not just by your doing, but by truly enjoying him with all of who you are. Will you receive it? Will you enjoy it? Pray with me. Father, to talk about your glory is a subject we can talk for eternity and, and perhaps we will. And I pray that this past 40 minutes or so, though insufficient as it was, that you would reveal yourself to those whom you have given from eternity past to the Son. And that they would know if they do come to know you, it is not because of a great sermon, it is not because of a great preacher, it is not because even great parents that has taught them the gospel, but because they have a Father that has eternally loved them and decided to create them anyways, although he knew all along the cost of what he would have to pay in order to love them. I pray you consume us in this truth. And let us sing now. We don't have to wait for eternity. Let us sing now as we behold the cross and the wounded body of Christ sitting at the right hand of the Father. Worthy is the Lamb who is slain. Holy, holy is He. To you, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, be all the glory, all the praise, for now and forevermore. In your Son's name we pray. Amen. Stand and sing this together. <laughs>